Hello, my name is Dan Cotton and you're listening to Metcast, the podcast that digs into the research, knowledge and expertise from across Manchester Metropolitan University and how it is transforming the world around us. In this month's episode, we speak to Oscar award-winning film director Danny Boyle and students from our School of Digital Arts who are working together on a -a once-in-a-lifetime collaboration. We also find out about a new study that has revealed how children who have been in care are disproportionately likely to have been involved in the youth justice system. And finally, we explore healthy ageing and speak to academics from our Institute of Sport who are answering the question, how can we live healthier and better as we grow old? But first, students from Manchester Met's School of Digital Arts have been given a unique opportunity to collaborate with Danny Boyle, one of the most famous film directors in the world. Laura Devaney went along to meet Danny and the students and find out more about the Free Your Mind project, which is being created for the official opening of the new Aviva Studios. What do you get when you combine hip-hop dance, The Matrix, Oscar-winning film director Danny Boyle and students from Manchester Met's School of Digital Arts? A once-in-a-lifetime collaboration for our students who've worked alongside Danny to create video work for Free Your Mind for art production outfit Factory International. It is a large-scale immersive performance based on the Matrix films created for the official opening of Factory International's new home and Manchester's new cultural venue, Aviva Studios. Director of iconic films including Slumdog Millionaire and Train Spotting, Danny Boyle is the co-chair of Soda's Industry Advisory Board. Over the past few months, a group of nine students from filmmaking, future media production and music and sound design have worked in collaboration with Danny to produce video content that features in the immersive production. Directed by Danny, Free Your Mind is a dramatic retelling of the classic sci-fi film told through dance, music and visual effects. From weekly workshops and tutorials to attending dance rehearsals and technical rehearsals for the show, students have worked collaboratively to develop their work under the direction of Danny and the creative team. I caught up with Danny to find out more about this unique collaboration with our students and I spoke to some of the students involved who shared their thoughts on taking part in this incredible opportunity and what they've learned. I also spoke to Anna Moutry, senior producer at Factory International, who told us more about Free Your Mind and the importance of the opening of Aviva Studios. But first, Danny told us more about Free Your Mind and how he has collaborated with Soda students. So we're doing an adaptation of the, uh, a kind of dance adaptation, hip-hop dance adaptation of The Matrix, inspired by The Matrix. Not just the first film, but the Animatrix and the many forms it takes. It's very inspirational work for a lot of people, a very prophetic work. And it's, of course, it just seemed the perfect opportunity to use the skills and resources of the students who are here at the School of Digital Arts, which is like the first proper digital college university, to connect with the matrix, which is about our digital futures. So that made a lot of sense. To try and harness younger voices as well, because there's obviously, for those of us of a generation who are not digital natives, there's also an apprehension about technology that actually colours your vision of it and it was one that it's wonderful to work with students who are proper digital natives there's always been screens in their lives really and so yeah it's a, it expands the opportunities that we have with the show but also the places that it comes from over the summer students have attended weekly sessions and tutorials with Danny at Soda presenting their work and developing their ideas. Danny explained how he'd found the process of collaborating with our students and the brilliant work they've produced for Free Your Mind. 
Well, it's been amazing, actually, because they've given up their summer, really, because it's unfortunately timed, really. It's, it's gone right the way through their summer. But they've been very applied, and they've produced some wonderful work, which we're trying to use to absorb into the show. We have a, the second half of the show. We think of the first half as an analogue half, and the second half as a digital half. And it, it's got the opportunity to feature some of their work as they interpret some of the ideas that we've tried to explain to them or outline to them, yeah. Having the opportunity to work on a high-profile project at such an early stage in their career is a once-in-a-lifetime moment for those students involved. I spoke to student Louis Bauer during one of the weekly sessions about why he decided to take part in the project. Uh, simply put, it's a brilliant opportunity. I don't think in a million years I would have expected to be working on this, uh, but the second I got the opportunity to do that, of course I would. A anyone you ask today uh, will have a very similar response. Uh, it's, it's a potentially once-in-a-career opportunity, and a, also a career-making opportunity to be able to work with so many brilliant people and uh, try and put your best foot forward and produce something that, well, I think anyone would, would want to be involved in. As well as developing their technical skills, students gained valuable experience of working in a professional capacity alongside industry professionals. Student Ali Johnson explained how this experience has equipped her with vital skills that can be applied to both her studies and beyond. I guess it's like obviously technical skills, like we've been using like a lot of different programs and also navigating communication with industry people and time management and sharing projects together because I feel like uni is more individual but like being able to work with someone else that's doing something pretty different to you and then trying to navigate that and all the different kind of work and stuff so just a lot of teamwork and like communication but also like how that links to technical practices and stuff. Soda is a £35 million investment into the next generation of creative content and digital skills, offering industry-informed courses and state-of-the-art spaces equipped with the latest technologies. Danny told us why it's important to collaborate with students who are ultimately the content creators of the future. It's, a, it's a partly a, a generational thing. They are the content creators of the future and they update you, they refresh you, they make you rethink your perspective. There's also a local importance about it as well. The factory is an extraordinary arts facility that's going to be, must be embedded in the heart of Manchester and its community as much as possible. So to connect with one of the colleges, Manchester is such a, an educational industry. So to connect, to literally arterially connect with one of the main sources in, in the city, one of the main resources in the city, felt like a no-brainer really. It felt like a great way to harness the strengths here and, 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 and display them on a large scale. Free Your Mind has been commissioned and produced by Factory International to mark the official opening of Manchester's landmark new cultural venue, Aviva Studios. I spoke to Anna Moutry, senior producer at Factory International, who told us more about what audiences can expect from the production. So Free Your Mind is the official opening of what is called Aviva Studios, the home of Factory International. Factory International was formerly known as Manchester International Festival and we have evolved as an organisation to inhabit a multifunctioning dynamic space that's been built on the old Granada site on Water Street in, in Manchester City Centre. And this was a big opportunity to create something from scratch together for a new building. Um, and with that kind of provocation in mind, they, uh, they, they arrived on making a hip-hop dance adaptation of The Matrix, which when you first hear it sounds absolutely bonkers, because it is. 
Um, but it was so brilliant. They were like, well, of course, that's what we're going to do. And over the past four and a half years, there's been various kind of conceptual approaches to what that adaptation might be. And they've landed on really a kind of a storytelling that is much broader than, than what the Wachowskis were talking about and prophesizing in, in 1999 with the kind of digital revolution and climate crisis. And, and that it really roots that kind of digital re revolution in Manchester. And, and we start the show in 1949 with Alan Turing giving a lecture on his early coding and, pro and his own prophecies around what machines might become and how AI might be, become a very real part of our lives. And it takes us on a journey from, from that point through to today and how what all of those people had in mind as a sensation about what this would become for us as a culture, this digital world has come true. And then really talks about how we choose to embrace that or how we choose to disengage and, and exist in the red of the world. It's a great opportunity for the city and it's one that we should be really kind of marking as an as a unusual event that won't often be repeated, especially to have students involved in it from Soda. You know, what an excellent way to kind of be looking at the future of our creative sector in professional productions at this point in their career. It's great. Factory International commissions, produces and presents a year-round programme of original creative work and special events at Aviva Studios, online and internationally. It also stages the citywide Manchester International Festival every other year. This new cultural landmark will help to strengthen the city's status as a national and international centre for culture, creativity and innovation, as well as a major visitor destination. Anna told us about the importance of Factory International opening here in Manchester and what it aims to achieve. Manchester International Festival was, came about in the early 2000s. I think the first festival, the Trailblaze, was in 2005, just after the Commonwealth Games had happened in Manchester and that real coming together of the city. And the city council, I think, firmly believed that they wanted to create something that was on an international scale um, that was different to what the offer already was in Manchester at that time. And so so came about Manchester International Festival, a biannual festival that happened over 18 days of original and new work. That was the USP of the festival and still is. And so what the factory hopes to do, in a way, is just propel that ambition and create more permanent space for that kind of larger scale work. And Soda is also playing its part in Manchester becoming one of the world's leading digital cities by equipping the next generation with the digital and storytelling skills they'll need to become content creators of the future. Danny told us how he's seen Soda progress since opening its doors in 2022. It seems to be very good. I've seen some of their finishing work. I've been up to talk to the students. This is the kind of most extended project I've been involved with, but it's very exciting to have a connection with the building. It's very exciting to see it be opened and to see the students come into it and leave it, which they've now begun to do. You know, the, the cycle begins to be complete. And I watched their end of year show and bought a couple of the pieces actually from uh, one of them. Uh, so it's, I'm very, very impressed, yeah. And as the cycle completes and students graduate from soda to begin on their next journey in their careers, Danny explained what advice he would give. The best advice I can give them is to expose them to a professional work environment because that's the most useful practical experience they can have. 
so they'll see what the world of work is like with you and I know what it's like but they, for them it's just a kind of something slightly amorphous in the distance while they're still being nurtured in the education system. Once they're out there, it's balancing the practicalities of that with the beauty of their ideas. You know, that I think Picasso said, we're all born geniuses. It's trying to protect that as you get older. And they're all geniuses. And as they move out into the professional world, they'll get crushed, they'll get, uh, you know, stomped on and all that kind of thing. It's trying to protect their original vision as much as possible. So it's a balancing act, really. Thank you, Danny. Free Your Mind is now open at Factory International until the 5th of November. You can book tickets by visiting Factory International's website at factoryinternational.org. Thanks, Laura. What a fantastic opportunity for our digital art students. Now, a new study has revealed that children in care are more likely to have been engaged with the criminal justice system. Rachel Toll spoke to the Manchester Met researchers to dig into the statistics and hear the reasons behind the findings. For many of us, the justice system isn't something we'll have to come across in our lives, much less so in our childhoods. But some people face it a lot while growing up, for whatever reason. And one unfairly disadvantaged and underestimated group of children in the UK is more likely to receive a youth justice conviction or caution than their peers. New data from our criminologists has shown that a childhood in care raises the risk of entering the English youth justice system eightfold, with 33% of children who've been in care receiving a youth justice caution or conviction. That's compared with just 4% of those without experience of care. The figures are higher still for some ethnic groups. But why is that? Have they been failed by the system? And are they being unnecessarily criminalised? As part of the largest ever study of care and the youth justice system in England, Ministry of Justice and Department for Education data from 2.3 million children born between 1996 and 1999 was analysed by researchers at Manchester Met. The impactful new research highlights the gaping inequality between children in care and other children, shining a light on the need to tackle failures in the system. To find out more, I spoke to Dr Katie Hunter, lecturer in criminology at the university, who led the study, and David Graham from the Care Leavers Association. First, Katie explained how the figures she uncovered were so shockingly stark, she assumed there'd been some mistake. And it was this data that really surprised me, because for all those people in my data set who'd been in care, which was about 50,000 people, I found that 33% of them, one in three, had a youth justice caution or conviction between the ages of 10 and 17, which was a much higher figure than I was expecting it to be. And I went back to my mentors and said, I've got this data, it doesn't seem quite right. And we probably spent four weeks maybe going back and two and just making, making absolutely sure that I'd done the right thing with the data and that it was accurate because the, the level of youth justice involvement was so shocking. So it had always been the narrative that a persistent minority of co-experienced children get involved with the youth justice system and that that was a, a problem and an injustice that needed to be sorted. It was this persistent minority that we were worried about. But this data was telling us that actually that minority is much bigger than we'd ever thought before. One in three. It's 
it's it's enormous if you think about it in terms of like a classroom of children, for example. But why do so many children who've been in care end up in the youth justice system? Katie gave us her expert take and she's at pains to point out that despite the disheartening data, we must never stigmatise the people affected. I come from this starting point and so do many other people working in the area that there is there's nothing inevitable about this and there's a lot to be answered for in terms of the way that we treat children in the care system and the way that we deal with them when they're in the youth justice system so you know children will enter care probably with some vulnerabilities they may be traumatized the very action of going into care will be really difficult what we tend to see is for some children and not all of them a difficulty in getting good supportive placements which can lead to placement breakdown lots of moves lots of instability which can make it really difficult for them to settle in but then we also have this additional I think persistent stereotype of children in Kirby and naughty when you know most children the, the absolute vast majority of children come into go for reasons that are entirely unrelated to their behavior nothing to do with them and then we've also got I think the, the biggest thing that we need to think about, and it's been recognised in major reviews, it's been recognised at the highest point of government, that we do have a problem whereby children in some care settings are criminalised for behaviour that they wouldn't be criminalised for if they were in a sort of quote-unquote family home. You know, it's not, it's not the children's fault. Essentially, these are kids that are probably going through the worst stage of their life. They're probably going to be doing things that are challenging, much in the same way that teenagers in at home are as well. But if you are really naughty at home, your mum is probably not going to call the police on you. But this is the difference in the curse setting. And we've had narratives about this improving, and I think there have been improvements, but practice is inconsistent. And we've also got a curse system now where it increasingly relies on privatised placements unregulated placements. A lack of placements for children with acute mental health needs, for example, has been highlighted several times by major judges. It's an issue Katie's tackling head-on. While this study was part of an administrative data research, UK Research Fellowship project with Lancaster University, a paper she led on earlier this year urges for a new legal duty on local authorities to prevent the unnecessary criminalisation of children in care. I think a really good step would be to place that statutory duty on local authorities to prevent unnecessary criminalisation through having their own localised agreements of the national protocol. So in a paper that I wrote earlier this year with some colleagues from Lancaster University, Liverpool John Moores and Bristol University, based on our last project, we looked at the available local protocols that existed that we could find and we found that quite a lot of them had, or at least a substantial amount of them had provisions in them which we felt were really counter to the spirit of reducing unnecessary criminalisation. So things like regular meetings with a designated police officer where care placements should share, should disclose incidents including non-serious incidents on a regular basis, which would just never happen. You wouldn't have a police officer come on, come over for tea once a month where your mum would tell the police officer exactly what you've been up to that month. It would just be absurd. That's what kids do. They push boundaries, they do all sorts of things. And if you add in the fact that a lot of these kids might be in pain 
missing their families, just wanted a bit of love and stability. You can see how it can easily translate into into something something bigger where they end up with you know in quite a lot of trouble essentially we should be recording information but in a non-stigmatizing way and also recording it when it is absolutely necessary and sharing it when it's absolutely necessary otherwise we should be really careful the protocols also need to take account of the different needs of children ethnicity is a big thing but also gender disability mental health you know it can't be like a one-size-fits-all because all children are different all situations are different. This urgent need for a new approach is shared by other high-profile organisations. David Graham is the National Director of the Care Leavers Association, a charity that works to improve the lives of care leavers of all ages. He's been supporting Katie's work for some time and can vouch for how valuable her new data will be for the care leavers community and for wider policy. That the highlight issue from Katie's research is the one in three uh, children who've been in the care system in her cohort had some contact with the criminal justice system. Uh, that is way more than we um, we ever envisaged. Um, it's it's always been very difficult in the past because the data has been sporadic and it's never been in depth and it's been in different parts of the system and it's never all been put in together in, in one place. So. It's absolutely fantastic what Katie's been able to do and spend this time uh, going through and, and looking at segmentation and different areas and uh, and kind of laying it all out in a way that hopefully is understandable to policymakers out there because that is, you know, one in three is outrageous. The one in three figure was even higher for some ethnic groups, with a total of 39% of Black Caribbean, 38% of White and Black African, and 42% of white and black Caribbean children who'd been in care involved in the youth justice system. Of all the children in the study, custodial sentences were almost twice as common among black and mixed ethnicity children who'd been in care compared to white children who'd been in care. It's an extra injustice David knows all too well. We're talking about prejudice and discrimination, really. There is still a general... Um, prejudice towards people in the care system uh, in, in, in kind of you know wider society which is why we need Katie's research to actually point that out that that is happening because um, the only way you can address it is if you know that it's happening. But there are glimmers of hope. As David highlighted now we know the extent of the issue authorities can hopefully work together to redress the balance and as Katie says it's important to remember what the focus should be on. Again, to reiterate, it's not about the children themselves. It's nothing inevitable. We're seeing this very much as a systems issue and the way that we racialise and could criminalise particular types of children. It's about who gets drawn into the youth justice system. That's the interesting and the most important question that we, that we need to be answering. Thanks, Katie. And with more findings from this important study still to come in the next few months, watch this space for updates. Thanks, Rachel. We certainly will, and we look forward to hearing more. Finally, we all know that staying fit, active and healthy becomes more challenging as we grow older. So, Sophie Mehta spoke to researchers at Manchester Metropolitan University Institute of Sport to understand how we can adapt our diets and exercise to help us live well for longer. 
Is it time to start taking your health seriously? Old Father Time marches on, but for thousands of years we have tried to conjure new ways to slow him down. But can we really age well? Can we live healthier and better as we grow old? It's an important question for an ageing society. We know that as we get older, our bones and muscles become weaker. What's more, this leads to an increased risk of both having falls and sustaining fractures. In fact, a third of people aged 65 and over fall at least once a year, and up to 20% of these falls result in serious injuries. Falls are estimated to cost the NHS 2.3 billion a year. But what if there was a way to drink from the fountain of youth? Well, researchers from the Manchester Metropolitan University Institute of Sport are looking into exactly how we might do that. From the very best exercises to prolong muscle health, to the best diets to strengthen our bones into older age. I'll be speaking to Dr Christina Langley, tutor in sports sciences, and delving into the findings of her most recent study that looks at the best and worst diets for fall and fracture prevention. She will also be explaining why your vegan diet might be putting you at risk of having more accidents and injuries later in life, and what you can do to mitigate those risks. I'll also be speaking to Hans Dagens, Professor in Muscle Physiology, about his work with master athletes, and what this work has taught him about exercise and ageing. But first, Dr Christina Langley explains why we need to be thinking about our diets early on in life to prevent falls and fractures later on in life. It's becoming um, extremely prevalent as we're living longer that falls and fractures are occurring. Um, So in our paper, we talk about um, the cost of uh, £50 billion being spent in the USA. And in the UK, obviously, we're a much smaller country, still a large population, but still costing us £2.3 billion treating falls and fractures, um, specifically osteoporotic fractures. And obviously, that's costing the NHS a lot of money. So we're looking to hopefully use nutritional strategies to reduce this vicious cycle of falls and fractures, because once somebody's experienced a fall and an injurious fall at that, they're much more likely to experience another one in the years to come, unfortunately. Calcium is well known as a nutrient that strengthens our bones, just as protein is known to enhance muscle strength. But in their latest paper, Christina and colleagues have looked beyond these typical nutrients. So there are indeed factors beyond the big three, which are vitamin D, calcium and protein, that can benefit our muscle and bone health. So these factors include our vegetable-derived nitrates and vitamin K1 that the research that we synthesise does suggest may reduce fall and fracture risk. There is evidence to suggest that Um, A balanced diet does support musculoskeletal health, so diets such as a Mediterranean diet rich in uh, fruits, vegetables, fish, meats, for example. And then finally, um, because it's becoming such a popular diet within the UK due to environmental issues, ethical issues, vegan and plant-based diets um, were a big part of this study where we investigated the risk of falls and fractures in those populations where we found that, um, unfortunately, they are at a higher risk um, of experiencing a um, hip fracture in later life. Um, so it's uh, one of our key findings was that they must be able to consider um, the nutrients and plan well ahead for, for taking on a plant-based or vegan diet. 
Interest in plant-based diets has grown significantly in the UK over the coming years, with figures suggesting the vegan food market is growing at a rate of almost 10%. With that in mind, how can those who prefer plant-based foods reduce these risks? Obviously, we've we've noted that there is, I think it's a 14.9 uh, in 1,000 people that are more likely to experience a hip fracture in individuals on plant-based and vegan however there are ways around that they could mitigate this again the careful consideration and planning of their diets knowing where to source things like protein calcium and vitamin d uh, because unfortunately these are things that are very dense in um, animal-based products such as you know your meat and your dairy products which vegan and plant-based diets don't contain um so Options are, you know, they, they investigate, you can go on to plant-based protein. Um, there's, you know, a lot of safe supplementation methods out there at the moment for um, vitamins such as B12, for example. It's not part of our study, but I know that vegans cannot get this in their diet. It's only derived from animal products. So that's something they would need to supplement on. So according to science, what is the best diet for healthy ageing? What we've found from our paper was that we need not only vitamin d calcium from um you know our our dairy products sun exposure but we also need to have um, a very dense diet of um leafy green cruciferous vegetables of lots of colors so we don't really deviate um from the current guidelines which is five servings a day of uh, vegetables but we do suggest that you look for different colored vegetables because they all contain different types of nutrients and that includes the the nitrates and the vitamin k which are really beneficial for you know reducing um, the risk of falls and fracture risk then you'd work your way to your grains so things like um whole whole wheat bread whole wheat pastas kind of the healthy grains that aren't um as processed so ideally avoiding the processed foods and then 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilogram of your body weight should be protein and that can be um intake taken from animal based products such as you know your lean meats and dairy or we can also source it through plant based products soybeans for example as one and then there's there's the one which is normal taboo isn't it fats we do need fats in our diet so healthy fats are obtainable things like avocados um some fruits and vegetables and then uh, plant-based derived oils. Obviously, we don't need as much of this, but they are important for the absorption of our fat-soluble vitamins, so like vitamin D. Now we know what we need to eat to keep our bones and muscles functioning for longer, but what about exercise? Professor Hans Gagans has been studying the impacts of exercise on our ageing muscles for many years. For his studies, he works with master athletes, typically around retirement age, to see why bone and muscle health declines. Is it because as we get older, we are less active or is there more to it? By working with individuals who remain highly active as they get older, he is able to consider what other factors are at play when it comes to aging muscles and bones. What comes out of this work is that master athletes have stronger muscles, have stronger bones, have a better endurance capacity than age match controls, non-athletes. But what we did notice is that the rate of decline in their abilities and also in their muscle mass and uh, muscle size is going down faster in absolute terms 
than in all athletes. So that is a bit disturbing. So then you think, why is this? Now, one of the interesting things that came out is that if you look at the percentage decline, then non-athletes and athletes decline at the same rate. So this made me very depressive. I thought, no matter what I do, I still decline, and even at a faster rate when I remain active. But the good news is that you can extend by being physically active and maintaining your health 15 quality of life years to your life. So that means that you are 15 years longer able to climb the stairs, dress yourself, wash yourself than a person who doesn't do exercise. So now the trouble is a lot of people may not have exercised during their life and they think, oh dear, now I'm getting in trouble. I'm 15 years earlier than the others. I'm getting into a care home. But also for those people, there's good news that it seems that up to a certain age, you can start training. And we have seen that in master athletes as well, that people who started late, maybe in their late 50s or maybe early 60s even, started training, they could come to the record levels of athletes that have been training for decades. But the level of an athlete is always lower of a 60-year-old athlete is always lower than that of a 20-year athlete. But you nevertheless can get there. So you're never too late to start training and also get improvement in your health. That's great news. But of course, not everyone is able to train at the same sort of level as an athlete. But Hans says that even moderate exercise can help support healthy ageing. Here are some of his top tips. The best exercise is moderate type of exercise to just stay active and it doesn't need to be athletic achievements but uh, as a rule of thumb 70% of your VO2 max or an exercise level where you just can talk uh, maybe make short sentences that sort of level would be good enough to keep you going and balance is even more important I would say than loss of muscle mass and bone strength because falls and that particularly because of loss of balance is really a serious um, cause of fractures, particularly in older people. So test your balance and uh, challenge your balance. Tie your shoelaces with eyes closed, standing on one leg while you can do it. And stay active, interrupt your sitting. Philip Jones, who is in his late 60s, has remained a keen runner and is currently competing in a range of master athletics. He has worked with Professor Dagens and believes Hans's research supports what he has found as a master athlete himself. It was good to know that from their research-based perspective were things that I was discovering for myself the hard way through um, uh, injury and experience um, and trial and error. Like Hans, Philip believes remaining active is the best remedy to ageing. So there's usually good news and bad news in these things. The, the, the bad news is that uh, it happens to all of us, whatever we do, which is one of the reasons that you can't stave off the effects of, of, of ageing altogether. But the good news is that doing what we like doing as most athletes, keeping going, um, keeping exercising, that's absolutely the best thing that you can do to uh, preserve your strength for as long as it's possible to do so because exercise is the super medicine really when it comes to aging. So there you have it. 
leafy greens, lots of walking and practicing our balancing act are just a few ways to keep us healthy as we age. We'll be keeping in touch with our ageing experts to bring you the latest science-backed ways to live longer and healthier. Thanks Sophie. A fascinating insight into some of the life-changing research happening at the University's Institute of Sport. That brings us to the end of this episode of Metcast, the official podcast from Manchester Metropolitan University. We'll be bringing you a new episode each month, so if you want to hear more from our experts, students and partners, as well as details on the latest research from across the university, be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast platform. Until next time, thank you from me, Dan Cotton, and the rest of the team for listening.